We are calling this series the I Am series because each statement Jesus began with these two words. They were words that were meant to reveal how he saw himself. And everybody has an opinion of who Jesus was. Everyone has an opinion of what he represents. It is fascinating to see how he actually described himself. It was a morning in the, in the midst of his ministry that we're going to look at this first statement. It was a morning in which he was sitting on the, on the side of uh, Capernaum, mountainside in the Sea of Galilee, the northern part of Israel, where he stepped in and his audience was interacting with him, asking him, pressing him to define what he was trying to get at. And in that moment, he stepped in with these words that uh, must have shook them up. It was not an answer they were expecting. He said, I am the bread of life. Words that must have caused them to feel a bit unsettled, perhaps a little bit shooken up in terms of what they were expecting and now what they were hearing and no doubt caused dissonance to erupt throughout their own thoughts and the whole crowd that was experiencing what he had just said. They were profound in their implication. But in order for us to be able to understand the gravity and appreciate what he said, we have to rewind a little bit to the day before. Because it was the day before in which Jesus was sitting on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and he was teaching to a crowd that John said numbered about 5,000 men. And that was just counting the men, not counting the spouses and the children, which would easily multiply how many people were actually there. And he was teaching them throughout the day. And towards the end of the day, the disciples came to Jesus a little bit concerned and they suggested, Jesus, Jesus, um, can we just suggest maybe you stop teaching um, the day is long here, and, uh, you know, they're probably going to get hungry. They, can we release them so they could go back home, get home at a decent hour, and feed themselves? Can we do that? And Jesus actually hears them out, hears their concern, and he says to them, I have a different idea. Why don't you feed them? And he says it with a straight face. I, my idea, why don't you feed them? Now, John tells us parenthetically, Jesus said this to test them, which I love about he was having a little bit of fun with the disciples. Why don't you feed them? Now, the disciples took him earnestly, and they sit there, and, is he serious? He's asking us. And one of, one of them, Philip, ends up stepping up and saying, Jesus, um, you know, Eight months worth of wages wouldn't be able to feed this many people. Are, are you serious? Is that, is that what you want us to do? And, and Jesus, I could almost imagine him smirking underneath his breath saying, "Wow, oh, yeah, I know. I know what I'm asking. I know. Why don't you go ahead and sit them down? Organize them in groups and go ahead and sit them down. And this boy, this child came to them with a couple of fish and a couple of loaves and easily discounted by the other disciples. Jesus didn't discount them. And he takes the bread, and we're told that John says he ends up breaking the bread and thanking God for it. He blesses it, and apparently they roamed the mountainsides with baskets, because 12 baskets appeared, and they end up feeding over 5,000 people. It was an event in Jesus' ministry that only happened, according to the Gospels, twice each seeking to 
demonstrates something, but it was, it must have been something to behold. This group of over 5,000 people seeing, witnessing the boy come up to Jesus, handing him his fish and loaves, seeing Jesus bless it in front of everybody, and then everybody in the crowd ends up having enough to the point, we're told, that there are leftovers in the baskets. And as everyone is seeing this, they must have felt like, is surreal, is this actually happening? This can't be. Is this true? This, this happened. One of, one of the most amazing miracles in Jesus' ministry unfolded right in front of their own eyes. And we're told that the crowd started clamoring together. They started talking to each other and they started recognizing what had just happened. And in their um, recognition of the amazing event that happened, they start demonstrating their own ambition because we're told that these people started getting together and thinking... Jesus just fed all of us with a couple fish and loaves. You imagine what he would do if we put him in power. And they think, they make, they think to make Jesus their puppet king. If we make him our puppet king to fulfill our purposes, we're set. And they start gathering together and everyone starts to agree. Obviously, that's a clear choice. Let's make him the one who serves our desires and we will be set for life. And as they are doing this, as they are seeking to make him their puppet king, by the way, a moment in which Jesus finds himself at the height of popularity, a moment we, if we're honest, would find very difficult to turn away. Jesus does just that. He escapes. And he goes to the mountainside alone without them realizing it. Once they see that Jesus is gone, the people disillusioned with it, but not giving up on their trek, they end up going back home, and the next morning, they remember what had happened. And it brings us to this account. If you open up your handout, we'll go ahead and explore together. We're told in verse 24 that John tells us, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, there being the location they were, there, they were at the day before, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, which would be across the Sea of Galilee, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. What we see here in these short verses is that what happened is the next morning, the crowd had not forgotten what occurred the day before. They decide perhaps we will go to hear him once again, and once again it will be repeated. They do not find him. They get in their boats. They go across the sea to this town called Capernaum. They see Jesus and they ask, Jesus, when did you come here? Now we know, John tells us that the night before, Jesus had crossed the, lake, the sea with the disciples. But they are not aware of such events. And so they ask him, when did you get here? Jesus doesn't even address the question. He has a knack of doing that sometimes. Instead, they say, when did you get here? He says, I'll tell you why you're here. We didn't ask that. Um, when did you get here? No, I know why you're here. You're here because of the loaves. You're not here because you understood the gravity of the, of the miracle that happened yesterday and all the, it implies. No, you're not here because of that. You're here because you want more loaves. 
which is fascinating. Jesus' capacity to read people, to reveal the motives of those who surrounded him. And after he does so, he steps in with a bit of a warning. Verse 27, do not, he says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal, that is, his very image rests on him. And then they said to him, what must we do then to be doing the works of God? See, Jesus steps in with a warning, and the warning is a principle that we know as the principle of diminishing returns. It doesn't matter how hard you work for the things that perish, they still perish. It doesn't matter how many things you accumulate, they still will not last forever. And he warns them. It's not to say that that work is bad inherently. What he is saying is, let's refocus here, guys. Let's refocus. If you're going to devote your energy and everything you got, devote it to the things that last. The things that have eternity ingrained in them. Would you devote work for that? And they hear him and they somewhat understand. And so they, they say, well, okay, if that's the case, what does that work look like? What, what, what do we have to do to get the things that don't perish? What is it? And they were no doubt expecting a set of rules, perhaps a set of laws that they were supposed to be abiding by, or rituals that they had to observe each day. Perhaps they were expecting, within their own religious kind of framework, some things Jesus would refer to. And what he says must have caused them to step back and reconsider how they were approaching this. Because Jesus says in verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. You want to know? Here it is. Here's what we ask you to do. This is what God asks you to do, he's saying. That you believe. That you believe. That you believe in him whom he has sent. Um, God's work, eternal life, is not earned with work. But it does involve the work of belief. That's what he's saying. And we could hear it. We could hear it because Jesus is pointing something out. They're expecting actions. He is asking for a disposition, an internal posture. And he's calling it work. And they, here's the thing, they understand exactly what he said. They understand he is asking for it might seem so simple, but it is demanding everything. Because what Jesus is asking for is extreme, absolute loyalty and trust. And they, they did not misunderstand what he was implying. In fact, they understood him all too well because we're told in verse 30, they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? If you want that degree of loyalty, man, you got to earn it. What are you going to do? What sign are you going to do? What work do you perform? Because our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. What, what is it that you're going to do? You know what? And this, this is where things start to get a little interesting, because this, let's not forget, is on the very next day after they had seen Jesus feed 5,000 or more people with a couple bread, 
loaves of bread and fish. How quickly they had forgotten what had happened one day before. Wow. It's almost as if they were saying, listen, yes, we know what you did yesterday, but man, that is so yesterday. What are you going to do today, right now, to demonstrate? You want that type of loyalty? That's what you're asking for? Then you got to earn it. And then they call upon the history of Israel, and they say, they call upon this moment in Israel's history. They say, listen, our, our ancestors... Our ancestors were fed manna from heaven that descended and it covered the ground and every morning they ate it for 40 years in the wilderness after they had been delivered toward, through 10 amazing miracles out of subjugation and slavery and in the middle where nothing could be produced. They were given manna, which by the way, manna in Hebrew literally means, what is it? Because every morning they were told to go out and these flakes would be gathered and they would gather. And the first time they gathered, they was like, what is it? And that stuck. It's manna. This is manna. There's no other answer except the question. Manna. And every day they would gather it. And if you try to hoard it, it would go bad the very next day. Unless the next day was the Sabbath. You would have to, they would have to gather their daily bread every morning. And it would be manna. And they said, you know what? They were fed manna for 40 years. And what they were implying was something that this translation doesn't cover. I asked them to put the New Living Translation up because I think it captures the implication. What do they say? They say, after all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say, Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. You understand, Jesus, you're asking for the type of loyalty only Moses had in our history. The type of respect and trust and obedience that only, really, only Moses has ever had. And look at what he did. For 40 years, he provided bread every day, manna, to our ancestors. We know this story all too well. That's what they're saying. Now you, Jesus, what are you going to do? Because you know what they're actually saying? They're saying something that has echoed throughout time. They're saying, listen, we need to see to believe. We need to see to believe. And this is where I... Um, I appreciate what G. Campbell Morgan said, a 20th, 20th century expositor and minister who wrote, he says, he, he says, it is still often affirmed that seeing is believing. Well, it is never true. Seeing is seeing. Believing is being sure without seeing. You understand what he's saying? He's proposing seeing is seeing, believing is being sure without seeing. You know, you know what that means? It, we know this to be true. Why? Because we try to marry the two. We try to say they're one and the same. To see is to believe. If I see it, you got my loyalty. But we know that's actually not true empirically. If two people see the same exact thing unfold before their eyes, two can walk away with different interpretations. We know it. We know it. That to see is simply that. It requires one additional step. To choose. To believe. That's what Jesus is getting at. It's what they were asking. They were asking. It's an amazing revelation of human nature. We, in some ways, we are so much like them. And yet there is a need to decide how will we respond. And this is where Jesus 
so lovingly, kindly, ends up stepping in and he, look at how he gently corrects them. He says to them, Jesus then said to them, verse 32, truly, truly, earnestly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father. Let's just start here. First of all, I understand what you're asking, and I understand what you're saying, but let's just clear something up. Moses didn't feed them for 40 years. God did. Moses didn't cause manna to come from heaven. God did. All right? So let's just clarify that. Just a small, small detail, but with enormous trajectories. God provided the manna, okay? Let's just clarify that. Okay, not Moses. He didn't make it. All right? In fact, and then he says, but never mind the past. Let's come to the present. My Father gives you the bread from heaven, the true bread from heaven. That's what he says. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So, I see what you're saying. You're comparing me to a point in our history of our ancestry, being fed in the middle of the wilderness. And in a way, you're on the right track because it is a foreshadow of what God ultimately will do. Back then, he supplied them physically with manna. Today, he supplies not just Israel, but the entire world with life. It's through a person. It's through a person. Now, Jesus was speaking metaphorically, but they were hearing him quite literally. They are listening to what he's saying and they're trying to connect the dots and they don't recognize that he now jumped into metaphor about what he was speaking. He was speaking of spiritual things and they were thinking he was thinking, speaking of natural, created things that we can see and touch and smell and taste. And so they say to him, in, in light of that, hearing what, they, what, what, he, heard, what he said, they, say, they said to him, sir, if that's the case, give us this bread always. Always give it to, you're telling us that you can give us bread that will satisfy forever? Um, give it to me. Always, will you always give it to us? Now we have to understand, we today, we live in a time in history where we have unprecedented access to all types of different foods throughout the entire world we're able to eat here because it comes to us. Things we're not even able to pronounce, but we're told it's good for us. <laughs> bread, it's not what it used to be. It, bread to us may be something of a side benefit, a side dish, maybe a luxury, something we, because of our restrictions, we actually try to avoid, unless it's the toast that is served here. That is unavoidable, but <laughs> so good. But we, we know that bread, back then, was no mere side dish. It was central to every meal. It was part of the main course. See, to have bread in a region in the world where resources were limited and the type of variety we currently have was unheard of back then, bread, to have bread was to have something central to their survival. See, they understood if they had bread, well, if they had nothing else, they could live. They could live. You offer us bread that will never perish, that will always continue to sustain us? Give it to us always. Give it to us always. 
significant what you are offering, and yet they are stuck in the physical nature of what, they, what Jesus was saying, and he ends up doing something that must have shocked them, a statement that must have caused them to feel, if we can hear this confusion at the same time, uh, jarring, unsettling, profound implications, because it is there on that backdrop that he says, okay, you want the bread. I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, I, you have made a comparison between me and Moses. The proper comparison is between me and the manna. And in the same way, God was able to sustain our ancestors for 40 years in the middle where nothing else could be cultivated. God is now able to sustain deepest hunger, deepest need through a person. Jesus is saying, me. I am the bread of life. They were not expecting that. Such a claim. Such an astounding claim. It ended up opening up a can of worms. Different people just ended up, it it caused such dissonance in the crowd. Everyone had an opinion. Some believed him for what he said. Others argued. They were skeptical. They, they, they They did not agree with what he was saying. The implications were far too outside of the box they were used to. And what is no doubt, what, what we can make no mistake of, is nobody misunderstood what he was saying about himself. Nobody walked away simply thinking, wow, what a great prophet or teacher. Nobody. Everyone was crystal clear what Jesus was claiming to be. What he was claiming to be able to meet was the deepest hunger of human nature. And what was he saying? He was saying, it's like, if you turn to me, you will be satisfied. You will be fulfilled. You will be able to ultimately no longer have the deepest hunger and the deepest thirst. It will be quenched. You might imagine what this must have caused in the crowd. Some left, some remained. Some remained intrigued, continued to explore. But they all, they all were brought to a point of needing to wrestle. What will we do with Jesus' claim? How will we respond? In our moments here, I'd like us to kind of just turn our perspective towards our own lives and examine, maybe unpack what Jesus was claiming through just a couple thoughts I want to put up there. Firstly, Jesus is saying something rather extraordinary, which is faith in Jesus is the greatest work we can engage in. That is what he's claiming. Faith in Jesus is the greatest work we can engage in. See, they asked him, what does the work of God look like? He said, here's the work of God. Believe. Believe in him whom God has sent. That's what it looks like. Which, if we can hear it this way, what is Jesus saying about belief? He's saying it requires something of our activity. He's saying it requires our participation. 
that it is not what we too often think it is, which is somewhat we might imagine like what we experience in a movie theater when we step in and we just receive something and it just ignites our soul and the best of films end up provoking a response. We might think, and yes, God loves to do that. But you know what he also loves to do? He loves to invite us to become part of his work to participate in it. It is now an active life. It is an active faith. It is not sedentary, like a pond that has no outlet. It is like a rushing river that has life in it, life all around it bursting at the seams. That is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that is the greatest work you could ever engage in. That is the greatest work, and we know we know, we understand, we understand this principle because we know that a career is not simply something handed to us, is it? No. It requires something of us. It requires the sweat of the brow, the discipline of our own mind and our energy, our skills and our gifts, all applied and focused towards a goal of growing in skill set and competence and the ability to be able to become someone that is able to build a career. We know that. And we know a relationship that is healthy and vibrant, a friendship requires something of us. It requires us to be able to be willing to roll up our sleeves and engage in the things that may, may cause us to rather detract. But we know that a good, life-giving relationship doesn't shy away from the hard things, stays connected and committed, ends up resolving things and working through things that end up being revealed. And it is there, it is in that work that true intimacy is actually experienced. And a beautiful relationship and friendship is able to emerge because of the work. And Jesus is saying, listen, faith in me is no different. It requires something of us. He, re he calls us to work and strain. And we know, we know this. We know this because some of us, if we're honest, coming to this house was in itself work. Because we... I've had quite a week. Or perhaps we carry baggage that no matter how fast we run, no matter how far we go, it just seems to continue to remain connected to us. We know it is work. It is work to attempt to draw near. See, we know because we may have had past experiences of others letting us down and to trust Jesus at the level he's asking us to, well, I don't know if I can do it. That's hard. That's actually really hard. We know that perhaps he's asking us, listen, in your crisis, stop isolating, start turning toward me. Well, then I don't know if I could take that risk. That's hard. We know to be invited into a community and to allow others to see into our lives, to be able to speak life and hope, and perhaps at times a word of correction is hard work. Yet Jesus says that, that's the best work you can ever engage in. That is what leads to true life. It's a dynamic life. It's alive, vibrant. Because he's also making another point, isn't he? He's saying, listen, this life that will require new habits, a radical new frame of reference that will require something of you you have not done before, that will require stepping into discomfort, all of that 
is what it looks like when he says, listen, what is he actually pointing out? That a healthy life listens to the hunger pangs of our soul. That's what he's saying. A healthy life listens to the hunger pangs of our soul. It has been said, Pastor Terry has often said it, we are spiritual beings on a human journey. We are not human beings on a spiritual journey. A subtle difference, profound implication. See, one lasts beyond this life. When this body is weakened and its days become numbered, Jesus is pointing out, well, there is something of us that will continue. That will continue, which means that holds precedent. Listen to the hunger pangs of our soul. That is what he is encouraging them to do. He, they were so focused on their physical bread. And he's saying, no, no, no. Okay, yes, that's good. But listen to the craving of your heart. Can you hear it? We live in a culture today where it is just so difficult to do this. We, we, we are surrounded in a moment in history in which we have so many options for physical comfort. We have all kinds of activities and events and distractions for our own entertainment. We have things that alleviates pain. We have things that are able to increase our sense of uh, comfort and sense of kind of just being okay. We do, at least in this part of the world. We have access to resources that only kings in times past or the incredibly wealthy were able to attain to. And today it is available to really anybody who would desire it. It's amazing. But it also can end up silencing us to the hunger that's inside of us. And it could actually, we can go weeks and days, months, years without paying attention to what's happening within us. And we could get adapted to a way of life that survives without feeding our soul. I remember reading this book called Soul Keepings by John Orberg, and he addressed this very idea. He shared a story that I thought I would just like to read and share with you. He said, the American devotional writer Letty Cowman wrote about a traveler visiting Africa and engaging a group of carriers and guides. Hoping to make her journey a swift one, she was pleased with the progress of many miles they had covered the first day. And on the second day, though, all the carriers he ha she had hired remained seated and refused to move. She was greatly frustrated and asked the leader of her hired hands why they would not continue the journey. What's going on? He told her, on the first day, they had traveled too far too fast. And now they are waiting for their souls to catch up to their bodies. We don't know that life. It is foreign, as foreign as the land in which this man spoke it from. She goes on, Kalman reflects, this whirling, rushing life which so many of us live does for us what the first march did for those poor jungle tribesmen. The difference, they knew what they needed to restore. Too often, we do not. You see, Jesus was compelling his hearers and he is seeking, if you could hear it, seeking to ask us, what is the hunger inside our soul? What is it craving for? And if we honestly start to look at it, what we will experience is a need for courage. 
It's a need for courage because what we will see is, is it's not so much that we don't have as much time as we would like to do it, although that may be true. It's not so much that we have responsibilities that call for our attention everywhere we go, although that may actually be significantly true as well. What we start to discover is that the longer we look within and the more honestly we perceive within our own soul, we start to hear a cry we fear we cannot answer. The cry is, who is able to satisfy my soul? Because Jesus doesn't need to convince us. See, we know the longer we live, we know it doesn't matter what the possessions are, what the education looks like, what the career is, what relationships we might be in. All of it, if we look to it to satisfy our soul, it will disappoint. We know it. We know it. And so we fear who is able to satisfy my soul actually has no answer. And yet, can you hear him step in and say, I am. I am able. I am able to satisfy. Is Jesus what I will forever love about him? Is that he never steps into our lives exposes our weakness or our need, and then leaves us in it. He never does that. He steps into our lives, exposes our weakness and need, and then says, I can meet it. I can meet it. But you first need to listen to the hunger pangs. And then you will know how I can satisfy. We do that. We learn to care for our soul in that way with Jesus. We will discover what he also implied, which is our final thought, that every aspect of our lives, every aspect of our lives is transformed when our souls are satisfied with Jesus. Because you know what Jesus, what did he say? He said, if you come to me, you shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And what did he say? He said, this is true bread from heaven. What does that mean? It wasn't an empty promise. It wasn't just kind of a, a, a word that was hyperbolic. No, it was real. It meant to connect to something that was substantive, that was a true need. But here's the deal. He said, God sent me as heavenly bread to meet what only heaven can meet, which means this, that if earthly means can meet it, it wasn't what he was sent for. What he was sent for was to address the needs of our soul that nothing in this world can actually adequately touch. What would that look like? What is the food our soul craves? Well, if we're honest with ourselves, we know at the end of the day, our soul craves hope. It does. We crave hope. We long for it. We hunger for it. We thirst for it. In the middle of our darkest night, when all the circumstances are going wrong, things aren't panning out the way we want them to be, we long to think and hear and listen and believe that there is a better tomorrow. We long for it. That is exactly what Jesus says and provides we feed your soul hope. There's something better coming your way tomorrow. And I'm talking the next tomorrow. It's far better than you could imagine. And that hope, by the way, is what caused the first century believers to resonate with such extreme strength that in the middle of being shackled on the bottom of a dungeon, they were able to sing songs to God and everyone else was astounded. How is it possible? You're in jail right next to me, yet you are filled with hope. What? You've been destituted and you've been beaten. You've been left and rejected. And yet you have something inside of you that cannot be overcome. 
How is that possible? It's possible because a soul satisfied in Jesus is a soul filled with hope. It's a soul filled with hope. It's not just hope. If I could suggest, it is also, it looks like acceptance. Because we may be afraid to admit it, but the truth is we all long to be accepted. You know why? Because we were created to be embraced. It's why rejection cuts us so deep. It's why it causes such a degree of defensiveness or anger to erupt or shame to envelop us because each point we are rejected, something, something cuts us at the core of who we are. And Jesus says, if you turn to me, you will be accepted, but not just by anybody. You will be accepted by the creator of all things. God himself embraces you. And he claims you as his own. That's what he gives. And now we become, now those who are standing next to, embraced by God. His name on us. He's mine. I claim him. I claim her. She belongs. He belongs to me. Doesn't matter who might reject. I have accepted. I have embraced. Can you hear that? Can you hear him desiring to satisfy our soul's longing for his embrace in our own heart? He not just gives that. You know what he also gives? He accepts us right where we're at. But you know what he also does? He gives us, because here's the deal. We can lie to those around us. We can even try to lie to ourselves. We can try to hide and run from it. But our soul, we, our soul cannot be lied to. Our soul knows when it is weighed down by guilt and shame. Our soul knows when it is shackled and all confidence is stripped from it. Our soul knows when it owes something to justice. And Jesus steps in, speaks forgiveness over our soul, breaks the chains. You are free no longer indebted. You don't have to carry the shame any longer. Be satisfied with my forgiveness. Can you imagine what a life satisfied with Jesus would look like in other relationships? If instead of asking of others to feed our soul, we are now satisfied, we step in and we give others hope and we give others acceptance and embrace them right where they're at. And those who may hurt us, those who may cross us, they, look, we're not immune to pain, but we are now able to give what was given to us, forgiveness. Everything is transformed. When we embrace what Jesus said about himself, I am the bread of life. May we... Taste and see that the Lord is good. May we be filled with that which never perishes. May we experience life with the great I am. In a moment, we're going to receive our time of giving and sharing a closing song. But I would just love to pray, ask for his blessing over this word. We'll move into this together. God, I thank you that uh, you sent your son equipped to meet the greatest need nothing else is able to. And you know us, God. 
You know us better than we know ourselves. You know how difficult it is sometimes to trust you, to um, engage in this life with you. So I pray that you help us. I pray you give us the courage. I pray you give us the motivation. I pray that you help us start to taste and see how you, the bread of life, is able to satisfy our hunger and quench our thirst. May you be our bread, Lord. May you be that. We ask for your blessing to remain with us and into the coming week. We ask for this in Jesus' name.